And so the the current you know current model it doesn't really allow for um, you know really scaling up because a lot of the hospitals they've sort of built their financial models around this, and so they don't want to increase costs, so they're very reluctant to do things like hire additional positions or uh, increase uh, increase wages. What's the connection between staffing, nursing shortages, nursing informatics, and hospital budgeting? Let's talk all about it with board-certified informatics nurse and consultant Robert Wingo right here on episode 372 of The Nurse Keith Show. Well, hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is always about you and your personal professional development, your career, the healthcare system as a whole. And I'm always here to share education, ideas, frequent diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the coolest and most inspiring people around. I love having you along for the ride. And I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of this growing Nurse Keith Nation. And if you find value in the show, it would be really awesome if you'd consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith. You know, we're now over 400 episodes, actually, if we count all the bonus episodes I've done over the years. And that incurs a lot of costs along the way. And there's some really great people who just shoot me a little bit every month to help support the production of the show. So $2 a month would be great if you want to pledge more. There's lots of prizes and awesome stuff I send you in return. Head over to patreon.com. That's patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith to sign up and show your support. And you can also refer yourself, your neighbor, your pet, or anybody to Nurse Keith Coaching for Holistic Career Coaching with me, Nurse Keith. If you'd like to explore what holistic career coaching can offer, please email me at keith at nursekeith.com. And if you want to schedule that complimentary chat, I'd be happy to have that conversation. And if you mention the show, you can get 10% off your first coaching package. And we're here today, like I said, with Robert Wingo, my friend and colleague, who is a longtime informatics nurse with over 25 years of experience. And he's got some really interesting stuff going on. And the first question I want to ask you, Robert, is what is it like to work in nursing informatics and how how has informatics really grown in recent years? Uh, hi, thank you. Thank you for having me on, Keith. So nursing informatics, you know, uh, when, I, when I started out my career as a nurse, I was a uh, an oncology nurse. I worked in inpatient adult medical oncology. This was back in the 90s. Uh, so I worked during that um, you know, managed care revolution. And as an oncology nurse, I really enjoyed it because my patients would come back every four to six weeks for their next cycle of chemotherapy. So I got to know the patients. I got to know their families. Um, and when they came back for the next round of chemo, they would actually come and find me and say, hey, we're down in the room whatever, please come and visit when you get a chance, even if I wasn't, wasn't going to be their nurse. Um, but in the 90s, we, again, like I mentioned earlier, the managed care revolution came through. There was a lot of cost cutting mm-hmm. um, and so forth. And the chemo administration got pushed to the outpatient clinics. So at that point, my patients only came back to my unit when they were febrile and neutropenic and they were actively dying. And that wasn't quite as enjoyable. Hmm. Um, but I was, a, I was a nerd long before I was a nurse, um, <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, 
in school as a teenager, I was writing computer programs for, for science fair projects. And I saw that the, the possibility of you know, technology and what it could do for healthcare. And so after being at the bedside for a handful of years, I had an opportunity to jump into a clinical informatics role, uh, supporting clinical documentation system. I did that for a couple of years and then I got a position down in Miami, Florida, where I installed my first uh, nurse staffing and scheduling system, um, which I've been, now been working with that for uh, about 23 years in nurse staffing and scheduling and budgeting and so forth. So one interesting thing about informatics and especially working with, with staffing and scheduling is that when I was at the bedside, I could only make a difference for the five or six patients that I was taking care of at the time. Um, in an informatics capacity, I have the uh, ability to positively impact nursing care delivery uh, through staffing and scheduling by providing uh, managers and, and the institution with tools and information to help them more effectively uh, manage their staff and provide the resources that they need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was that a hard transition? And did you find leaving the bedside left you sad or bereft in any way in terms of like not having that patient contact anymore? Or do you feel like you, you'd done that and you were satisfied moving into the, you know, the more like informatics and staffing and budgeting world? Um, I, I definitely miss the patients. Yeah. I, that, 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 that interaction uh, of the patients and their families and, you know, especially with, with cancer patients, which it's a very difficult time for um, those patients and families. But I, I had a wonderful uh, preceptor uh, as a new nurse on, a, on an oncology unit. And she said that, you know, each type of nurse has a, a purpose. And sometimes the purpose for the oncology nurse is to help prepare patients and families for, you know, unfortunately, the inevitable, inevitable death that occurs with mm -hmm. some of those. And so, you know, the, the, the caring and, and trying to be sure that you see the patients and preserve, preserve as much of their um, humanity and dignity as you can in the last days. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I enjoyed it, but I found it very, very satisfying. And, and that to me, it felt like oncology was really sort of the embodiment of, of caring and nursing. Mm. Yeah. It's a big transition. And it also seems like, you know, knowing you as I do now, that the work you're doing now is very, very important. And you've identified some things that are, could be pretty disruptive in terms of, in a good way, in terms yes. of looking at budgeting, staffing, mm -hmm. and errors in the budgeting and staffing processes that actually really impact patient care directly. Because if we're understaffed, then patient care is impacted, nurse burnout and nurse fatigue is impacted. Um, that could that could increase attrition. You know, nurses quitting because staffing is bad. So, I mean, the work you're doing right now can have very far-reaching effects. And I know you've worked for others, and now you're a consultant and a blogger, and we'll talk about all that. So you've identified something really important and you've been writing about it on LinkedIn. You've been publishing blog articles now on your new website, Informatics Nurse. Um, can you 
encapsulate for us what it is you've identified. And we can talk about, you know, the bigger impact of the error that you've identified. Um, sure. So when it, when it comes to nursing budgets, so, you know, they, the managers and, and CNOs, they sit down and they decide, you know, what level of care they want to deliver, say, on a particular unit. And so these nursing budgets, they typically start with calculating uh, the number of patient care hours that we need to provide for a specified level of care for a given number of patients. Mm-hmm. And so the level of care, you'll and I'm going to talk primarily about inpatient units. Yeah, we'll focus on uh, acute care. Right. Yeah. So the level of care may be something like a nurse to patient ratio uh, or a desired uh, nursing hours per patient day target. Or it could be some other metric decided by nursing leadership. Uh, and the given number of patients is often you know, the average number of patients, the average midnight census or uh, average census by day of the week. And so in doing that, you can go in and calculate if we have, you know, if we expect to have on average this number of patients and we want to provide a certain level of patient care, how much staff do we need to put on duty to provide that? Uh And so those calculations are fairly straightforward. Where it gets a little dicey is, is, okay, so you figured out how much it takes to take care of your patients, but what do you do if somebody wants to take some time off? So you have to hire additional uh, positions to provide enough enough uh, people so that if somebody decides to take a week off for vacation, you have somebody that can step in and, and provide the patient care. So the the error that I've discovered is actually in that that calculating those extra uh, positions or uh, FTEs, full time equivalents in budget terminology uh, that need to be hired, and those are typically uh, referred to as. Uh, covering non-productive time. So you have productive time, which is you're taking care of patients and your non-productive time. That's a very common term, although there's some uh, discussion about uh, changing that because it's not really non-productive. You're actually doing things. But non-productive time is traditionally that time that is anything that is not patient care. Uh, And so what happens is, is that calculation, it produces about a two to two and a half percent shortfall of the expected hours, uh, which that doesn't sound like a whole lot, Mm -hmm. two to two and a half percent. But if you have a hospital that has, that needs 500 um, RN full-time equivalents, uh, and they have this error and they're expecting to use 15% of their total time as non-productive time, uh, this error introduces a shortfall of uh, almost 32 12 hour shifts per week, which that's an incredible amount of patient care time to be lost. 32 12 hour shifts per week. Mm-hmm. So that's for a that's a lot. I mean, that's that's not quite five. Sh- yeah, I'm just trying to do the math how many nurses that would impact in the course of a week. So that that one example right there, if you annualize that, yeah, you're looking you're looking at a loss of almost twenty thousand patient care hours per year. Wow. Okay, I was trying to do the math in my head and it was just <laughs> not working, um, yeah. which is you know par for the course with me and my brain. But so you've identified this, and has has anyone else ever identified this problem that you've been able to 
to ascertain? Well, uh, so yes, actually, the way I discovered this is, you know, I was researching nursing budgets because, you know, with the pandemic and the short staffing and everything, I kind of thought that uh, with my experience, maybe I can come up with something that would, um, that could help with staffing and scheduling. So I was looking at budgeting and staffing and scheduling from a mathematical perspective. Um, and I picked up a, a book by uh, Professor William Ward, who he's a uh, professor up at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He's been teaching graduate um, healthcare finance classes for many years. Uh, and in his book, he described this particular error. And basically, it's a middle school level algebra uh, math error. So when you, what happens is, is let's say that uh, you, excuse me, let's say that you have a unit and you've determined that you need 42 and a half FTEs, full-time equivalents for your unit, and you want 15% of your total hours to be that non-productive time. Well, the, the error is, is you take that 42 and a half and you multiply it times 15% to get the extra uh, positions that you need uh, to schedule. But the problem is, is that doesn't give you 15%. It actually only gives you 13%. And that's the 2% difference. That's that, that's that 2%. Difference. Which adds up to, you said, how many, many, many hours of nursing per period of time that we're, yes, gonna, it, we're it, looking at. Yes, it, it produces a shortfall in the expected FTEs. And so that's where it gets confusing for the nurse managers, because if they only have uh, 13% non-productive resources available, but they think their budget has 15%. They may look at their productivity report, and their productivity report says that they are using 15% uh, non-productive time. But then the nurse manager can't figure out, well, why is it that I have unfilled shifts and I'm having to use overtime? Mm -hmm. It's because they don't realize that they're using more than they actually have available. Mm -hmm. and, and, and when they do that, uh, any overage that you spend on that non-productive time um, has to be pulled away from patient care. And that cost of overtime is is high, right? It's often, what, time and a half or whatever or something along those lines. Well, yes, it's, it's the cost of overtime. Uh, then you also get into issues of, you know, burnout and mm -hmm. understaffing. Attrition. Yeah. And attrition. I mean, it's just, it impacts so many things. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of nurses listening to this show are likely acute care nurses because that's I don't know, what is it, 55 to 60% of nurses in the United States work in acute care, something along those lines. Um, so what did they see on the ground, boots on the ground, when this error is manifest? One, they're seeing they have to work overtime, which is a good and a bad thing, right? They may, might, right. might make more money in the short term, right? Right. But what's the impact on them day to day, shift for shift, and then over a period of time? What what do you see as the like the 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 wider um, impact crater that is being impacted by this asteroid of of timing and staffing um, errors, budgeting errors? So the the formula error is, is one part of the problem that I've identified. Mm -hmm. uh, the interesting thing about this is I've been able to track it out, and this error has actually been around for 30 years. Mm -hmm. 
And somehow it's worked its way into uh, the conventional wisdom uh, such that we actually have experts that are publishing articles that contain this error. Um, we actually have some high profile professional organizations that are providing workshops to nurse managers and are teaching nurse managers the budget process that contains this error. So it's perpetuating the error, right? Yes, it's, it's perpetuating the error. Okay. I mean, uh, at first, when I discovered it, I wasn't sure how widespread it was. Now I think it's, I think it's fairly common. Mm. And so one of the ways that this sort of manifests itself is, uh, you know, when employees submit their time off requests, they'll submit them, you know, weeks to months in advance. I may have a wedding that I'm going to in September, so I'm going to put in my time off request now. Mm -hmm. And what happens is, is the nurse manager sits down and they have no real concept of how much non-patient care time they can schedule while leaving enough resources needed to schedule the patient care shifts. And so what happens is they overspend on approving all of that non-productive time, and then they use whatever's left over to put at the bedside. And what that looks like is that you'll get a, a new schedule posted alongside an overtime sign-up sheet. And I think a lot of nurses will probably be able to identify with that. And just at a very uh, analytical, from a very analytical perspective, what's happened is, is that nurse manager has spent more on non-patient care shifts than they have the resources for. Mm. And this is where the error manifests. So like exactly. we said, that leads to people feeling overworked and overburdened, right? And then we have mm -hmm. our nurse-patient ratios get tweaked, right? And then that leads to burnout and compassion fatigue and attrition. And then the staffing issues kind of blow up from there. Now, exactly. adding into this particular mix is what we identify regularly as the nursing shortage or shortages, you know, that happen in different regional areas or even mm -hmm. different metropolitan areas. Cause there's not, it's not like there's a shortage in every single place we go. The shortages happen in various places for various reasons. So if we layer on top of that, the pandemic and what's happened over these last couple of years, it sounds like there's a recipe for some staffing disasters and some real problems for nurses who are out there slogging it out, right? Yes, <laughs> um, absolutely. You and I have talked to, I'm sure, many of those nurses who are slogging it out, and some of them are listening right now. So what are your observations and thoughts about taking into consideration this budgeting error that you've identified that's being taught over and over and over and over again for the last 30 <laughs> years and to this right. day? and these shortages and then the pandemic, like what's, is it a perfect storm that's happened over the last couple of years? Um, the past couple of years have definitely exacerbated the problem. Yeah. Um, when it, when it comes to the nursing shortage, I the nursing shortage has actually been around much longer than I believe most people realize. Mm -hmm. um, so I have a quote I'd like to read you. Go for this it. is a quote from, from a, from a government report about uh, nursing and it says many nurses have left the profession because of being underpaid for strenuous over overtime labor and always with the same story of being short of help thereby having to do more work than a human can possibly stand now that sounds like it could be pulled from the headlines today it could 
It could. Uh, this quote is actually from a report titled The Economic Status of Reg Registered Professional Nurses that was published in 1947. 1947? 1947. And I've got additional material that, that has, uh, you know, talks about the, the problem, of, you know, even going back to the, the 1930s. 1947. I mean, we're talking 1947. almost 80 years ago. So yes. 73 years ago. And that uh, really yeah. could be pulled from a headline of the New York Times or whatever, or any nursing website today. So right. obviously, this is nothing new. Um, but we have, we've had this pandemic over the last couple of years. And I mean, we know all the fallout from the pandemic. So <laughs> in the context of this quote, which you've never, haven't shared with me before, um, what does that tell us about this long-term problem? So I, I think, unfortunately, one of the things that it brings up is that our, our leadership has kind of let us down here. This, this nursing shortage has been a thing uh, for 75 years. Hmm. Um, I think it's very telling that there really hasn't been much done to address, uh, you know, the issue of patient care resources for decades, but the healthcare industry has spent significant uh, time, energy, and money to expand the administrative layer. Uh, when, when I became, became a nurse back in 1992, there was a lot of talk and discussions about the impending nursing shortage uh, and the retirements and the, the growth of healthcare and so forth. Uh, and they were talking about the period that we're in right now when I became a nurse 30 years ago. And so we really haven't done anything to, to address it. And one of the big challenges is, and I don't know how many people realize this, mm -hmm. is, is that the, the, the fee for nursing services is rolled up into the daily room rate charge in the hospitals. Yes. And it's, treat, it's treated by finance as a, as a cost to be reduced, contained, and managed. And mm -hmm. I, think that said, that, I think that unfortunately says uh, a lot about the value of nurses in our system today. And so part of my work is, is you know, we need to have a serious industry-wide discussion about the state of nursing. And what are we going to do to stabilize nursing in the short term and position it for the growth that we need to replenish the healthcare system. Yeah. And when nursing, we've talked about this on the show before with a couple other guests, when nursing services are rolled into the cost of the room, and we're talking acute care, obviously, right. um, then you can't bill for nursing services, right? Because mm -hmm. it's just rolled up into cost. So what's, what's the impact of that? And how does that affect the way in which nursing care is valued in the, in the big picture. So before I get into the impact, I'd like to back up, back up just a little bit. Yeah. And you, and you know, nurses back in the 1920s, mm -hmm. th they used to contract directly with families for the, the care of their relatives. Mm. Um, and they would provide a bill. And so part of how nursing ended up rolled into the room rate is, you know, it was the 1920s. There were several uh, medical innovations such as aseptic surgery, x-rays, and, you know, medical laboratories led to this growth in hospitals. Um, and prior to, prior to that, hospitals were really more for the poor and the destitute. But when they became businesses, 
um, they really struggled with how to bill for nursing services. Uh, and they were struggling with you know, how to pay for everything. So what they did was hospitals actually looked to the hotel industry. And that's how we ended up included in the room rate. Really? Is that, that's yeah. true. So that was about a hundred years ago. Uh-huh. Yep. 1930s. They looked to the hospitality industry. Yep. Huh. Interesting. And of course we can see that hospital care does have some hospitality. Um, you know, maybe there's no coincidence that it's called a hospital. Um, mm-hmm. There is some hospitality involved, right? We need to care for people and treat them well right. and welcome their families and feed them and all that sort of thing. But it sounds like a big, big piece was missed here. Yes. Yeah. So, so as far as the impact, um, you know, by having the, the fee for nursing services rolled up into that room rate, it, it does a, a few things. One, again, it's, it's seen as a cost. Uh, by finance, something that they need to cut and reduce. Um, it, uh, it, over the years, it has had the effect of basically depressing the salaries for nurses and nursing assistants uh, by excluding them from the supply and demand uh, market forces. Hmm. And uh, one of the other issues is, is that you've got this, this one sort of generic charge, but we know especially all of our nurses at the bedside, that there's a, a wide range of acuity and workload in patients. So it doesn't really capture the work uh, that a nurse may do, be doing with an acutely ill patient, you know, versus a patient that may be, um, you know, waiting, waiting to be discharged. And so the, the current, you know, current model, it doesn't really allow for um, you know, really scaling up because a lot of the hospitals, they've sort of built their financial models around this, around nursing as a cost. And so they don't want to increase costs. So they're very reluctant to do things like hire additional positions or uh, increase, uh, increase wages. So when we come back from the break, I want to talk about what it would mean to change this particular um, calculation, (laughs) Um, what kind of sea change would have to occur in order for this to happen. And I also want to talk about just what it's like to be a nurse who's found a solution and to a, you know, a vexing problem and just what the process is like. People might be wondering, like, what does Robert have to do to get the word out about this particular thing? And who does he talk to? And how do we actually make change happen. So when we come back, I'd like to dig into those things and a couple other topics related to this. Does that sound okay? Yeah, that sounds great. All right. So we are here with Robert Wingo, nurse informaticist and nurse consultant, and we'll be right back with the second half of episode 372 of the Nurse Keith Show. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod and my friend and colleague, Robert Wingo. And Robert, prior to the break, we were discussing this uh, real important miscalculation (laughs) that you've discovered and you've been, you know, putting out in the world and talking to people about. And right before the break, we were talking about, you know, how nursing is sort of wrapped up into the bill for the room, right? And this goes back to a hundred years ago in the 1920s when they were looking to the hospitality industry for how do we actually, you know, 
do this. And so that was part of the business model. So having identified this budgetary error that dates back 100 years to when this was all rolled into the room rate based on what they saw in hospitality, wouldn't it take an absolutely enormous sea change in order to to change the way in which we bill for nursing services? Would, Would things have to be turned absolutely upside down in order for this to happen? And and what would the repercussions be? And would everyone go along for the ride? Uh, that, that is the big question. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I've been looking at, you know, nursing workforce issues, you know, from sort of the, the mathematical perspective. It's, it's, it's a numbers game at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have multiple challenges and headwinds. We have obviously a large number of nurses that are going to be retiring. Yeah. We have, we have significant issues in our uh, education pipeline for nurses uh, with you know, not enough instructors. And part of the problem with the nursing instructors is that their salaries are just so, so low. Yes. Um, yes. And so it's very difficult to attract people to um, you know, be a, a nurse educator. And then we have you know, the added uh, complications of COVID and the pandemic. And sort of the stresses and everything that has been placed on everybody uh, with that, all of the you know understaffing and burnout and and moral injury, and I believe hospitals have been kind of backed into a corner by having nursing uh, set up as a as a cost. Hmm. So you know, in look in looking at the numbers, we really have to we really have to sort of get real about this. We've, we've got to find a way to, the bottom line is, is we have to find a way to put more caregivers at the bedside. That's the bottom line. And in order to do that, we have to, imp- what the nurses are saying very loudly and very clearly is that the working conditions are, are the problem right now. And you can further break down working conditions into issues of workload and issues of compensation. Mm-hmm. And workload very often means you need more people there on duty to share the load. So what we're talking about is we need to hire more people to put them at the bedside, and we need to give them better salaries. So doing that under the current uh, nurse included in the room rate cost model is going to be extremely difficult. And I think we need to start exploring, you know, how do we take nursing from being a cost to where finance basically defines how many resources we can devote to patient care to having nursing be a revenue center where we can actually bill for nursing services and take into account things like um, you know, patient acuity. Uh, in requiring a higher higher level of care. But when you say we, you said we need to look at this. <laughs> I, I'm thinking, okay, there's insurance companies, there's um, the fiduciary people, the financial mm-hmm. people at institutions, there's large healthcare systems, small community hospitals. <laughs> you know, you have the the nurse managers, the CNOs, you know, when when you say we, it's a humongous collective we, and it sounds like we would need a lot of buy-in from a lot of people and institutions in order to actually make this work. 
So when I mentioned sea change a few minutes ago, it sounds like it would take like an enormous individual and collective agreement that things have to be different because you couldn't have just one hospital change it, right? Wouldn't it have to be a systemic change? Uh, yes, it would be. Yeah. And uh, there, it, yeah, it is a, it would be a huge, huge undertaking. Yeah. Uh, and it would impact so many things in healthcare. But again, my concern is looking at the workforce and looking at the numbers. Um, if somebody could e- explain to me how, again, we can stabilize nursing mm-hmm. and position it for the growth we need mm-hmm. under the current model, I would love to hear it because I'm having a really hard time seeing how we can do that. I would love to hear it too. Yep. And and here's a question I want to ask you, which might be on some listeners' mind. When you're a nurse who, whether you're an informatics nurse, staff nurse, manager, whatever, so you're a nurse, and you found a solution to an important vexing problem, <laughs> how does one go about actually getting people to listen. And I know this has been basically your job recently is getting people to listen. Um, Mm -hmm. What do you do? Do you knock on doors virtually and, and non-virtually? Do you, do you like grab people by the lapels? I mean, we know that this is a slow moving ship. Yes. What do you actually do to make people listen to something like this, which you and I know is very important. Yes, and it's it's been extremely difficult. So in, in looking at all of this and looking at the problem with, with scheduling resources, um, I've actually identified a very, a very simple formula that nurse managers can use to calculate how much non-patient care time they can put on a schedule while leaving enough uh, resources for the patient care shifts that they need. And I'm calling it my care-centric scheduling approach. Hmm. And it's, it seems very simple. Um, and I've got, you know, a very lengthy post on my blog where you can go and read all the, all the gory details on it. That's true. And so I, I started out by reaching out to leaders in healthcare. Mm-hmm. And this started last summer, actually. I spoke to uh, just an incredible number of um, PhDs, DNPs, uh, mm-hmm. C-suite executives, mm-hmm. um, healthcare finance people. Um, healthcare uh, influencers and innovators, mm-hmm. and I got nowhere. Hmm. Um, I've had uh, it's been very frustrating that the um, industry just hasn't been receptive to hearing this. And I actually had a number of people tell me along the way. They said, "Robert, you're you're going to have a hard time getting people to listen to you because they're afraid of how much money it's going to cost them." Mm-hmm. Um, and the other issue is, is that uh, this this budget error is so entrenched, in that we have, we have experts and you know high profile professional organizations, and I'm also aware of two very large consulting firms that have been uh, approving of this flawed methodology in in, uh, in hospitals. So it's been very very difficult to get buy-in and engagement from from leadership. I even went so far as to uh, have someone forward my information to a senior policy advisor to the American Nurses Association, which I never heard from them. It's been over two months. Um, I'd reached out to a couple of directors at the Healthcare Financial Management Association, 
And I've largely been ghosted by them. They just stopped replying to my emails. Mm. So it was at that point that I decided to take it, take it to the streets. So that was why I started my blog. Mm-hmm. And I'm, tr- I'm trying to reach out to nurse managers and nurses at the bedside and even nursing assistants so that they have a better understanding of well, why is it you're working so short staffed all the time uh, and giving them information uh, that they can use to better understand that, but that, that they can also take to their manager and start asking questions to say, you know, hey, is there a, a better way that we can do our scheduling? so that we're not working so short-staffed all the time. Yes. And then there's people along the way, like Dr. Bonnie Clipper, shout out to Bonnie, who's been on the show a couple times. She's a real nurse innovator. She's like the top nurse influencer on LinkedIn, actually identified by LinkedIn. There's certain people out there who have heard your message and actually are introducing you around because there's people who need to know this. And then you just said you're going to the grassroots. You're talking to nurses and nursing assistants and people kind of boots on the ground, so to speak, Mm -hmm. to kind of tell them, look, this is why, this is, this is how your shifts are going. And this is why you're understaffed. And, you know, maybe they, they may not have a, the deeper grasp of, you know, the, the, mathematics involved like me i don't have a grasp of it either but we can see it's a problem that you have a solution absolutely yeah so networking is something right and i talk about networking all the time and i think this is a case study in networking that you have to knock and knock and knock and knock and ask for introductions and ask for connections and just keep ping-ponging around till you find somebody who's going to listen to you Right. Yes. So whether it's trying to get an idea across or find a job, this is what one has to do. And you have, you know, you have your blog, you have informaticsnurse.com and you're on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. And you also have your new um, um, consulting practice, Perceptive Staffing Innovations LLC, which I think is great. So that's consulting and education. And you're trying to work with healthcare facilities around safe and effective scheduling so that they can leverage staffing and budgeting and scheduling and productivity, all those pieces. So they need you. Um, So you've got the writing you're doing, and then you can offer consulting and all these people you need to talk to. And what I understand, and I want to ask you about this, is Nursing informatics is actually part of the underpinning of your understanding of these processes for you to actually have identified this, right? Isn't right. isn't your your grounding in that part of the whole this whole calculation of your discovery? Um, yes. So you know, one of the big things about um, about nursing informatics is working with, with data and information. Um, you know, structures and so forth. And, you know, when a lot of people talk about nursing informatics, one of the first things they think about is, is EHRs and, uh, you know, Epic and Cerner right. and stuff Which like that. Which is like that. what I think of when I think of informatics too. Exactly. So there was actually a, um, a report, a joint report that was put out in 2020 uh, by uh, the American Nurses Association, the American Associ- American Organization for Nursing Leadership, and the Healthcare Financial Management Association called the Business of Caring, Promoting Optimal Allocation of Nursing Resources. Mm-hmm. 
And, and in this report, they talk about how we need to improve understanding and communication between nursing and finance. And they put forth you know, several recommendations for, for building these you know, nursing and finance teams and understanding you know, the financial operations and how it uh, interfaces with you know, the, the patient care operations. Uh, and just the, there's several recommendations in that report. I would recommend that everybody go read it. And so I, I think this report actually creates a lot of uh, opportunities for informatics nurses. If you go and you look in the nursing literature, there's a lot of information out there on how to create nursing budgets. And there are, there are you know, multiple valid uh, mathematical approaches for creating budgets that will get you to the same end result. Um, there is that one that I've identified that is sort of the outlier that is problematic. But the article's kind of in there. There's not really much in the way of, of uh, information in the literature or education available for nurse managers that talks about how to take that budget and create safe and effective schedules. And I believe that that space is where, is where nursing informatics can really step in and help out by, by having informatics nurses that, that understand the math behind how we create these schedules and the math behind how we create the budgets and what it means to create a schedule and not have to post an overtime sign-up sheet and having enough resources because your schedule is the foundation for your daily staffing operations. So if you go in and you have a schedule that has a lot of you know, empty shifts, by the time you get into the day and you're doing staffing and you have to factor in your call-ins and having to float people to other units, uh, it can be uh, quite the mess. And, but like I said before, I've got this, this formula where managers can figure out, well, how much time can I schedule for non-patient care shifts? And that formula will also give them valuable data where they can have real conversations with their staff and say, okay, here's the situation we're in. This is what it looks like. And so staff understands uh, sort of what it's going to look like, you know, in the trenches okay. there. But it, also, but it also gives the manager information and data that they can take back to their CNO and the finance to say, look, I'm having a real problem here and I need some help. And can we talk about some strategies and solutions on how uh, we can better, you know, better allocate our resources? Can we get some additional, re you know, additional positions? Uh, and what can we do to sort of alleviate mm. uh, the staffing problems we're having? Yeah. And, and if I'm a nurse, whether I'm an informaticist, staff nurse, manager, you know, unit director, whatever it is, right? And I've identified a problem. What's the most important thing for me to do when I've identified an issue that needs to be addressed? Like where where does one begin? Because you're you've been on a long road and it's not like mm -hmm. this started yesterday. So when it seems like it's an enormous thing to to deal with and you're like what do i do you know what would be the something you would tell a nurse listening right now who might be out there right now thinking i've identified something what's one of the first steps so once you identify a problem and you decide you want to do something about it mm -hmm. you've got to backtrack and you've got to find the root cause of that problem 
Okay. What what is what is what is the step or the the whatever it is that is sort of the genesis of that problem? And then once you've identified that root cause, you can then analyze it and figure out well what are what are some things that we can maybe do to address this? Uh, which that's basically what I've done with the staffing problem. I looked at staffing and backtracked from all the understaffing to look at the budget and figure out, okay, well, it says we have this many resources, but the budget says we should really have this different number. And, you know, backtracking it all the way to, you know, so far I've tracked it back to 30 years. It's sort of the first uh, instance I've found of this, this budget error. So now I understand the budget error and the math, and it's a matter of figuring out, well, what's the proper math? What's the proper formula to use to ensure that we have uh, an accurate accounting and calculation of the resources that we say we need? So you're going to um, root cause analysis, basically. Exactly. Right? And some basically, nurses yes. might like cover their ears and go like, la, 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 because they don't want to think about that. <laughs> but if you're going to come to someone and say, hey, there's a problem, right? Sure, you can tell them there's a problem, but if you can say there's a problem and here's what I've identified as being one of the or several of the potential causes of this problem, then that's where a deeper conversation, a more nuanced conversation can happen. Because if you just go and say there's a problem, someone will say, oh, that's nice, there's a problem, right? But you have to come with something and data speaks volumes. And of course, you have to cater how you deliver something based on who you're talking to. If you're talking to financial people, you talk finance. If you're talking to, you know, another group, then you have to speak their language, right? So Mm -hmm. basically it comes down to communication. You have to communicate clearly, but you have to have some meat on the bones of of the solution, right? If you just clamor that there's a problem it's not going to get anywhere, right? You have to come to them with something of some substance. And if, and if you want to take it to the next level, you know, once you've identified the root cause, yeah, you take that information to say, hey, we have a problem. I've identified these issues as being contributors to the problem. The next step would be to say, and I think that we may be able to address this or fix it or improve it by doing this. Mm-hmm. So if you come with the problem, the cause of the problem, and you know a proposal for potential solutions it's it's much easier to get that discussion started because you've already done some of the work and and when you're taking it to your your boss or your supervisor or whoever you know they don't have to start from scratch and figure out oh well gosh well what are we going to do about it you've already provided some ideas that while your idea may not necessarily be the best one it certainly provides a a jumping off point and food for thought for uh, whoever else needs to be involved to solve right. it. Right, that's right. And if people want to read about, you know, what you've been doing and read, you know, the the deeper the the deeper explorations you've been making, including talking about CNAs, like how do you stay fully staffed with mm-hmm. CNAs? You have a you have a significant post about that very recently. That's at the it, that's at informaticsnurse.com. And we'll have links to that in the show notes, plus your Facebook, Twitter, and your LinkedIn. And before we go, I want to ask you a few questions that I've been asking of all my guests. So are you game for a few questions? Sure. 
All right. So the first one is, um, how do you define success? I would say that success is having, having a goal and making meaningful progress towards it. I would say you don't necessarily actually have to fully achieve the goal to be successful. But if you're continually moving forward towards that goal, that is certainly, I believe, success and progress. That's good. It's a sort of eyes on the prize philosophy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's good. I like that. Okay. Next question is, how would you describe one person who's inspired you in the course of your life, living or dead, famous or not? Okay. Yeah. I, that would most definitely be my wife, Lisa. Hmm. Tell us why. Uh, she, she has been my, my staunchest supporter. And when I have been so, you know, frustrated or, or stressed out, uh, she has always been there encouraging me because she, she also believes in, in what I'm doing and feels that, that my work is important. And she has absolutely supported me you know, 100% uh, along the way on this journey of, you know, trying to you know, strike out on my own and trying to, uh, you know, start my blog, start my own, own business and going out and doing all of this, this networking. Uh, she's just been my, just has been just the most amazing uh, cheerleader. And I would say, you know, with this and actually with, with other things, we've, we've been together a little over 20 years uh, and she's just always been there for me. Uh, and it's just has my back. That's really lovely. And I know you live in Houston with Lisa and your daughter, Sabrina, and three cats yes. and a corn mm-hmm. snake and a tarantula. Mm-hmm. So you all have, um, you have a nice little family in Houston. <laughs> and um, yeah, yes, I hope do. the cats get along with the corn snake and the tarantula. Um, <laughs> or maybe they don't interact very much. Um, <laughs> okay, so next one is, is there a book or a movie that's had a major impact on the way you think or the way you live your life. And it doesn't have to be like a favorite book or a favorite movie, just one that kind of like informs something about who you are, how you look at the world. I, I can't really give you the, the name of like a, a specific book. There's okay. actually sort of a, a handful of books, mm-hmm. um, but it has to do with the, um, the, the teachings of Buddha. I'm, I'm hmm. Buddhist. And, you know, one of the big things about Buddhism is the concept of suffering and that we're, that by being alive, that we're all going to suffer to you know, various degrees from, you know, suffering the, the death or loss of a loved one or suffering, you know, not having your favorite condiment for your sandwich. It's a very wide range of, of, of issues you can run into. And, you know, in nursing, we very often deal with, um, you know, suffering of our patients and suffering of our families. And here with the pandemic, we've seen a tremendous amount of suffering in, in uh, healthcare workers and also the families that those workers go back to. Mm-hmm. So, so for me, part of the reason that this work that I'm doing uh, now, why I feel it's so important is uh, one of the things that we do as Buddhists is we try to uh, decrease suffering as much as we can for ourselves and for those around us and for the world at large. And this, this staffing problem, if you look at, you know, over the decades, the, the issues that it's caused, 
Um, it's just the amount of, of suffering from understaffing, um, the, the stress and burnout, moral injury, the, the, just having a chance to potentially improve those staffing conditions with the work that I'm doing is really what drives me. Um, I'm doing it for the nurses. I'm doing it for the patients. Um, I'm, I'm trying to make a difference. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's really what, uh, what drives me and, and what has really sort of influenced my, my life and my work at this point. That's great. I like how you, you contextualize that in, in a bigger way. You know, it's not just one book. It's more like a school of thought. It's more like a, right. a philosophy. And I, I really appreciate that. So thank you. That's, I really love that. And um, um, Pema Chodron is one of my favorite Buddhist writers. I love her books. Um, like the one about, um, they're, well, they're all about the nature of suffering and compassion pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Like the places that scare you and mm-hmm. those other books by her, which are when, when, yeah, when things fall apart, that's a really important one too. That could be like a handbook for COVID nineteen. Oh yeah, she's yeah. a fantastic author. She is fantastic. Yeah. Okay. One last question: What's a piece of advice you'd give eighteen-year-old Robert right now, whether you think he would listen or not? What would you want to tell him? Um, <laughs> this is actually a, a pretty good uh, uh, question because of a, a book that I read recently that just really resonated. Hmm. Uh, with me. Um, the Four Agreements. Are you familiar with that? Oh, yeah. Don Miguel Ruiz. Yeah. Yes. Um, I would say go and read and and understand the Four Agreements and what it's saying, because I believe those four simple rules um, can actually do help you navigate just so many things in life. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that goes back to question number three. Is there a book or movie that's had a major impact on the way you think or live your life, which would be The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. So you actually answered two questions at once. So that was that's a good one. I think someone else has mentioned The Four Agreements along the way too. So that's that's a pretty far-reaching book. Yeah. yeah. Thanks and, for the and, reminder. And, yeah. And, and in that book, there are also um, some commonalities and Buddhist concepts that are kind of woven in there you know some of these things are are almost sort of universal truths and they'll pop up in different cultures that's true yeah it's not that book isn't super esoteric i mean it's pretty it's pretty uh it's something most people could connect with like don't take things personally i mean there's some pretty direct um, advice there so robert those are really good responses thank you and thanks for sharing all about this this problem you've discovered and the ways in which you've begun to tackle it and, you know, the work you're doing out there to benefit all of us, patients, nurses, everybody. And this is really important. And as things move forward and you publish your famous memoir and you're on fresh air (laughs) with Terry Gross and everything, I'll have you back and, you know, you can remember me when. So you know, we'll have you back to talk more about this as things go on, but I encourage people to head over to informaticsnurse.com to connect with you on LinkedIn, follow you on Twitter and Facebook and help get the word out. And thank you so much for taking the time. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on Keith. And I would, you know, I would love to hear from uh, anybody that would like to learn more about the, 
staffing issues. And if you're having, you know, particular challenges at your institution, maybe you're a nurse manager, or maybe even you're a CNO, I'm more than happy to talk with you about how I may be able to help you um, make more sense out of your staffing and scheduling operations. Excellent. Great, Robert. All right. Thank you so much. And there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nurse Keith Show. Remember, you can find the show notes over at nursekeith.com. And if you need personalized holistic career coaching, please don't look any further than nursekeith.com. Mention Robert Wingo or the show and get 10% off your first coaching package. And if you want to become a patron, head over to patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith and consider becoming a patron of the Nurse Keith Show. We're a proud member of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. We're adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting and Mark Cappiespeason is our stalwart social media ringmaster and our newsletter rustler. And before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote by the musician Robert Fripp. May my living honor my parents and may my living repay the debt of my existence. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. And my friend Robert Wingo saying Arrivederci from... From Houston, Texas. Houston, Texas. Thank you so much, Robert. Thank you to everyone for listening. And we will catch you on the proverbial flip side. <laughs>